Hey, Hagerstown Church. It's good to be back with you this morning. I'm so thankful for Pastor Tim and his faithfulness to the Lord and to his word and to the church here at Hagerstown. Uh, as we, as he brought the word to us the past few weeks, he's been a faithful pastor to this church. And so I'm thankful for he and his wife and the ministry that they have amongst our families and our people. And so I hope that you're thankful for him. I hope that you're an encouragement to him. We truly are blessed. I uh, also want to just say this. I'm thankful for Governor Hogan and the work that he's been doing, especially I'm thankful for the announcement that he made this past uh, week. He announced that we are entering into phase one as Marylanders and in our reopening phase. Pastor Tim and I began to discuss. We weren't expecting that announcement and what it would mean for us as a church, um, but it was interesting and exciting to hear nonetheless. And so we began to, uh, to change and reformulate our plan that we could put out to you guys. And so we've made available on, at hagerstownchurch.org uh, our re-entry plan as a church. And so I want to encourage you to check that out. If you would, wait till after the service, um, if you can. And, uh, but, but specifically about that uh, re-entry plan, I want to speak to that. I've got a cool announcement to make myself. And so there's se uh, several steps, four to be exact, in that plan. And beginning today, we're entering into step two. And so step two for us basically means this. Everything that we're doing right now is going to stay the same, except for this. If you're in a D group, we're going to ask that you begin to meet in person. And I encourage you to do that. This is a, a great opportunity for you to begin to, to step out of um, what, where we've been and in the, in the quarantine that we've been uh, finding ourselves in and to find community in a face-to-face -face venue. And so we would encourage you to continue uh, to, uh, adopt, or to use uh, good principles on washing hands and uh, keeping a distance uh, between you and those in your D group. I mean, if you can meet outside, meet outside. But, but either way, we want to encourage you, if you're in a D group, um, to go ahead and uh, begin meeting in person. If you're not in a D group, uh, reach out to us. You can message us here right in the comments below. We'd love to find a way to get you plugged into a D group. I know that's vitally important in the life of a Christian, that you be connected uh, in, in discipleship relationships on a regular basis. People that actually know you. And in addition, people that you know, so that you can be an encouragement, you can be a, a, an edifier, and uh, in times like this especially. And so these are, these are, this is just one way that we as a church uh, fulfill the Great Commission and fulfill the one another's of Scripture. And so I would encourage you to, to, to check out that document and to uh, get, enjoy uh, community with your D group. Now, into the text this morning. Here's another thing I'm excited and thankful for. I'm thankful to be back in the Word with you guys this morning. And so this morning we find ourselves finishing up chapter 2 of Mark and entering into chapter 3. And so if you have your Bible, turn there with me. I'm sure you're already ready to go. Um, but we'll begin reading in chapter 2, verse 23. And again, we'll read all the way into chapter, uh, chapter 3. The Bible says this, verse 23. One Sabbath, he, speaking of Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any uh, but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill it? But they were silent. 
And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to them, to the man rather, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? God, this is our prayer this morning, that you truly would bless your word as it exits my tongue and enters our ears. Father, that it would leap off this page and that your church would be edified, we would be encouraged, that we would be corrected, and that those who are in darkness would be called into light. Even this morning, we pray that that would take place. Father, in our homes, across the across the internet and wherever this reaches around the world or even just down the street god we pray that you would be glorified and that those in darkness would be drawn to light and we ask that these be done in the name of jesus and for his glory alone amen as i typically do i want to begin our time uh, as we look at this text with a main point that i believe is, is, is floating to the top or rising to the surface here in this text and that that main point is this, and, and the rest of it, will, the rest of the, the stuff that we look at this morning will really support this. But here's the statement. The sinful heart turns blessings into burdens, but Jesus offers rest. The sinful heart turns blessings into burdens, but Jesus offers rest. The sinful heart, it has this uncanny ability to take the laws of God, to take the commands of God that are really meant and designed to bring us freedom and rest. And we transform them to where all that can be experienced is burdens and slavery. This is what our lives end up looking like. At the end of chapter 2, the disciples, here they are, they're hungry, and so they reach out. Why, why wait, right? They grab a Snickers they, they grab what would perfectly lawful to do. They reach out as they're walking through the, the neighbor's field. And they grab some of that, uh, that uh, weed and they begin to rub it in their hands to, to remove the, the husk off the outside of the fruit there. And they begin to eat it. And what happens? They're condemned. In chapter 3, we see a, a man with a withered hand. It's atrophied away from injury or disease. And yet Jesus, he calls out to him instructs the man to reach his hand out, and Jesus heals him. Now this man is able to work for himself. He's able to make a living for himself. Perhaps he was in the throes of depression. Perhaps he was struggling with poverty, unable to feed himself literally and even metaphor uh, metaphorically. Because of these two events occurring on the Sabbath, the Pharisees lost their minds. They literally lost their minds. And at the end of chapter, or at the end of the part, the portion here in chapter 3, I think it's verse number 6, it says that they began to plan how they would kill Jesus. Why? Because of this. I want you to see that the Sabbath was a, a huge deal to the Pharisees. It was a, it's still a huge deal even to this day to the Jews. But even though it had been uh, ordained by God, the Sabbath day, and we'll see that in just a moment, we also will see that they had turned, the Pharisees had turned the Sabbath into something that it wasn't meant to be. And so the idea that we're holding up this morning about the, the human heart being able to take blessings that God gives and somehow turning them into burdens really is, is not just occurring, doesn't just occur with the Sabbath. It occurs with so many things that God commands and so many things that God calls us to do. And yet this morning we see this principle or this idea or this fact so clearly displayed as it relates to the Sabbath law. 
the observance of the Sabbath. It was one of the principal distinguishing uh, marks of Jews as the people of God. Sabbath and circumcision. They were, these were the two most obvious. They were the, the two most uh, obvious marks of a Jew. And it, really, because of that, they were upheld and guarded with what I would say would be just be extreme fanaticism. It was a matter of national pride. This was an area that one would not mess with if they valued their life. The Jews, the, the Pharisees, we'll see, they guarded the Sabbath so intensely that ultimately this would be the reason why they would go at Jesus, why they would demand his life. Now, we, we recognize that when the Pharisees bring Jesus to Rome and to the Roman rulers, what do, they, what do they say? Well, they don't cite the fact that he's broken the Sabbath. Why? Because the Romans don't care. And so that's why they've not brought it up whenever they stand before, they stand before Pilate, they stand before Herod. They're not accusing Jesus of not observing the, the Sabbath. Why? Because, again, the Romans don't care. But this is the reason. This is the straw that broke the camel's back. This is the, the turn for the worse so to speak. Now, of course, Jesus came, why? To lay down his life. He came to die. He came to serve. And this was, his, his point was to come to the cross. And yet, physically speaking, this is where it begins, here on the Sabbath. And so again, one wouldn't mess with the Sabbath if they valued their life. And Jesus, he has come to lay his life down. And so as we look at this idea of the, of the Sabbath, I think it'd be helpful for us to break it down into a few things. And so I've named them all, um, used terms that all begin with the letter P. So that might help you this morning if you're taking notes. And these are the, the points that we'll walk through this morning. And so precedent, purpose, practice, and then we'll end with perversion. So precedent, purpose, practice, and perversion. And these all are uh, related to the Sabbath. And so let's talk about the precedent of the Sabbath. And we'll move through these very quickly. So what is the history of the Sabbath? Where did it all begin? Well, it's almost literally as old as time. If you want to jot this down, Genesis chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 are the first uh, uh, explanation of what takes place in relationship to this Sabbath, this first Sabbath. And so what happens? Well, it says this, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all of the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so God does the work that only God can do in creation. And what does he do? He does that in six days and on the seventh day he rests. Now is God tired? Uh, of course God's not tired. But what God is doing is he's setting a precedent for us. He's setting a precedent for us. Now literally the term Sabbath means to cease. It means to cease utterly. And so God ceased working in creation on the Sabbath day. There in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Again, we see it mentioned in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. This is when God is giving, when Yahweh is giving uh, the Ten Commandments, both to Moses and to the children of Israel, who are gathered around Mount Sinai, there at the foot. In Exodus chapter 20, it says this, God speaking to the, the people there, he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work. 
you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So God in creation, he set a precedent for mankind and then he commands them to observe that day as holy by resting and worshiping. But why would he do that? Why would God set this precedent for the people, his people? Why would he do that? Well, that's the precedent we see God in creation. And they're explicitly making it clear to them in Exodus chapter 20 by giving it, as he gives them the law. So we saw the precedent, but let's talk about the purpose just for a moment. Let's talk about the purpose. Why would God do that? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 5 verses 14 to 15 gives us a little bit of a behind-the-scenes idea and clue as to why God instituted the Sabbath. That's Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Let me read verse, verse 15 for you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So God tells us, that the Sabbath rest is a benefit for the workers, and it stands in contrast to the way that the people of God were treated in Egypt. You know, it's odd to think about it, but God commanded man to rest. He commanded it. Sometimes, in my weird sense of humor as a dad, um, I'll look at my children with like the sternness, as if they're in trouble, and then I'll bark at them that I bought them ice cream, and it's their favorite kind, and they're going to eat it whether they like it or not. And of course, they want the ice cream, and of course, they like that ice cream. And so they look a little bit confused as I pull the ice cream out, and I give them a scowl, and I begin to scoop it out and give it to them. That's just me. I'm a weirdo. But uh, my kids, they, they're used to that, and I think they might even like that. But here God is, is commanding them. He's not barking at them, but in a loving, fatherly way is commanding them to rest, to take a break. He ordered the Sabbath day to be a rest for the sake of the people. What was the purpose? Well, he had brought them into existence. He had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And he commands them to do what they hadn't been able to do. And that was to rest. And in that rest, to worship God. It goes without saying. Jesus already mentioned this. He already clearly states this, that God didn't create people for the Sabbath. But instead, he created Sabbath for people so they could rest. It was established, established in order to be a blessing to his people so that they could attend to their physical and, and even spiritual needs one out of seven days. But the subjective principles of the Pharisees, they basically they make man a slave to Sabbath. That's interesting. They have been rescued by God, by his mighty hand and outstretched arm. They had been rescued from Egypt given this gift of the Sabbath, and now, what had they done? Well, they had taken that Sabbath, that blessing, and they had transformed it into a burden. More on that in just a moment. But that wasn't the intention of God at all. He wasn't trying to give them another burden. They had had their fill of burdens there in Egypt. Yet God was trying to give them, and had given them, a blessing what was the purpose, though? Well, the purpose was this. Of, it was for reverence. It was a time of, of, of reverence that they could worship the Lord. They weren't able to do that in Egypt. 
That's one of the reasons why they, 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 they request, Moses requests that they exit Egypt. Why? So they could worship the Lord, so they could make sacrifices to him outside of Egypt on their own. So Sabbath was for reverence. It was also for rest. It's explicitly stated. But it wasn't just for rest. It was a break from work, which didn't mean that they had to lie on a couch with their eyes closed, uh, pretending to take a nap if they're not tired. Why? Because rest really could take the form of rejuvenation and recreation. It could also be a time of refocusing. And so reverence, rest, rejuvenation, recreation, refocusing, this was the point of the Sabbath. To take a break from slavery, to take a break from the work that was required. Don't you feel like you sometimes are in a bit of a rat race? You have these needs, you have these needs that are met, that need to be met within your family, within your own personal life. Maybe they're a financial, some type of a physical need. The Bible says, God has commanded you, six days shall you labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day you will want rest. Why? Because God knows you. He knows that you need a break. More than you need more money, more than you need a raise, you need to rest. And how? who knows better than God? The great physician, the one who formed our bodies, literally says to us, you need to rest. And so, of course, God's intention for us that we would, was, would be that we would use the Sabbath day for reverence, rest, rejuvenation, recreation, and even refocusing. That's not what we find the people of God doing on the Sabbath day. So many. As a matter of fact, that, that they had been perverting that. But more to that in just a moment. Let's look at the practice. Let's look at the practice. And so we looked at, initially, the precedent of the Sabbath, the purpose of the Sabbath. Now I want to look, talk about the, the practice of the Sabbath. And we'll talk about the practice that it should have been. What should the people of God have been practicing as it relates to the Sabbath? Well, let's review. God commanded to keep the Sabbath day. And how do they keep the Sabbath day? Simply this, by not working. That's the command of God. If you, if you go back and look in Exodus, if you go through the entire Old Testament, what we find in the law is that the people of God are to rest on the Sabbath day. That you are to rest. Well, there's nothing more. Nothing about getting something to eat. Is there anything about how far you can walk? No. These are all extra biblical. These are all of these laws that we've heard that even the Jews, many of them practice today. We're not found in the Old Testament. But they're found in some commentary written by a man about the Old Testament that literally laid burdens on the backs of the people. Consider the context that the Israelites were in as they received the law. I've already alluded to it. But when they were children, of, when the children of Israel were, were in Egypt, they were slaves. Every single resource that they had would go to the beautifying of the temple, not to Yahweh, I use temple loosely, but a pharaoh. Everything that they had was, was wrung out on the altar of the fake deity, Pharaoh. Everything that they had was, was spent for him. But when the children of Israel left Egypt, and they went to Sinai to receive the law, Yahweh gives them ten commandments, and these ten commandments were gifts to them. Why? Why, Why were the ten commandments gifts to them? And, and if, you're, if you're a teenager or you're a, you're a kid, listen up, this will make sense to you. 
Oftentimes when you, when you receive some type of a command by your teacher or your, your parents or some elder or uh, you know, res- person that's responsible, your caretaker, oftentimes we can become frustrated because we, we don't view these rules as gifts to us. But when a mom tells the, the, the child, hey, don't touch that, and the child wants to keep continue touching, he said, well, what is he trying to touch? Well, she's trying to touch the stove. And the first time that the attempt to touch the stove is successful, what do we see? We see that the the mother was giving a gift to the child, and yet it was not received as a gift. And in a similar way, God, Yahweh, there at the base of Mount Sinai, gives a gift of the law that literally flows out of his own being and is consistent with God's own nature. He gives these gifts, the Ten Commands, Commandments. They've been on the short end of the, of the justice system for a long time, which is to say they were not receiving justice at all. They'd been subjected to idolatry. They, they were victims to, of, to, of theft, and that their resources and lifeblood literally was stolen from them, stripped from them, even their own children. They were immersed in a culture of immorality. They were forced to, to pour their lives out for the sake of a false god. But now... They were protected from the sin that so easily besets, from the sin that destroys them. They were being protected from that. It was a gift emanating from God's own being, these commands were. They were introduced to laws that promoted human flourishing, but that were also, as I said, consistent with God's character and nature. Perhaps chief among these laws would be the command to rest on the Sabbath. And that's it. That's what they were to do. That's the practice to rest. And yet, we recognize that that's not what was taking place. Do you see the difference between God and Pharaoh? Do you see it? Pharaoh takes, Yahweh gives. One ladens, one lightens. One consumes, one consoles. One burdens, and the other blesses. There's quite a difference. Any man-made religious system ultimately either tends toward or comes from this same principle that Pharaoh's principles came from. They're the same. And listen here, the Pharisees' law, it was not law at all. As I said, it's not in the, the Bible. It's not in the Old Testament. It's in the Talmud. It's in some commentaries of some, some man and what he thinks and how he's taken the, the laws of God that were meant to be blessings and he's turned them into burdens. And he's done so very exhaustively and diligently. The disciples here and even Jesus, they, they break no law. They do not break the law of God anyway. Which displays for us that they're not breaking God's law, they're breaking man's law. Pharisees, they had taken a law that when correctly applied, when correctly observed, it would promote glory to God as the one who sustains, as the one who meets needs, even when we don't work, even when we rest, as Psalm 3 declares to us. When it would be kept, it would promote joy for the people, but in the end, their additions, their manipulations that attempted to in some way improve or clear up, ultimately removed all glory to God and all joy to man. And again, this is our point this morning, that the human heart 
takes the good that God gives and turns it from a blessing into a burden. Now, as I look at this text this morning, I'm, I'm reminded of Pastor Tim and his point last week. And now he, he shared with us, and it was so good. He said this, that the law of man and the law of God are incompatible. Incompatible. You see, because the law of man, it wants to take God's laws and God's gifts to us and for us, and it wants to turn it in to a burden. And that was never the intention. And when we add to or we take away from the laws of God, it's not the law of God anymore that we are keeping. And so again, I pointed out the difference between God and Pharaoh, between Yahweh and Pharaoh. And now, do you see the similarity between Pharaoh and the Pharisees? Each of them, in their own right, were laying unbearable burdens on the backs of God's people. Burdens that were inexhaustible and crushing. Crushing. And so that was their typical response. Their typical response, the Pharisees, was to modify God's law in some way to where it would become a burden. So that's their typical response, and it's a perversion. And so finally, let's look at point number four, perversion. Perversions. So one approach, and I will go through several this morning, but one approach, uh, not particularly seen in this passage, but uh, one approach to God's law, I guess you could call it a perversion, is the rebellious approach. The rebellious approach. It's, it says something to the effect of God is oppressive. He's, he's trying to hold me down. It's that whole uh, toddler mentality when you try to touch something that, you, that can hurt you and bring, bring harm to your life. When your hand is smacked or when your hand is pushed away or when that is moved a little bit higher on the shelf to where you can't reach it, what do you say? You're oppressive. You're holding me back. So either in, in an outright rebellion, we, we're rebellious, or sometimes we're subtle. We take creative license in our rebellious approach. And we, instead of being outright rebellious when it comes to the laws of God, we, we take up a little bit more of a, a subtle, secretive one. And we say things like this, God wants me to be happy above all. And so although he has said this, it's within my, my reach and it makes me happy. And so therefore, I'm going to take it. God would want me to have it. Well, what have you done there? Well, you've still been rebellious. Either way, whether it's outright or whether it's secretive, it's still rebellious against God. We don't see a lot of that here in the text this morning, but we do see that in the New Testament. We see that in our lives every day. God gives us commands, and what do we do? We look at him and we say, you're oppressive. Or we, we recreate God. We redefine him in our own way, and we say, no, the, our God would want us to have these things. Both of these are the inappropriate response, and I guess you could call them a perversion in response to the Sabbath or to God's law in general. Another approach, in addition to the rebellious approach, I'm going to give you a few this morning, is the legalistic approach. We do see that here this morning. And the legalistic approach basically has this opinion that we were created for the law, and the law was not created for us. That we exist to in some way support the law. Jesus outright condemns this. This idea that we can somehow uh, support this law. 
That, that our lives are to be poured out for these laws or for these commands is not the purpose, but the, the contrary is actually the case. And so somebody uh, tied up in legalism would literally kill themselves in order to, to, in some form or fashion, according to their mind and their interpretation, uphold the law that was actually meant to preserve them and to bring them health. And so we see the legalistic approach very clearly here in chapter 3. The Pharisees are furious, by the way, that Jesus would, would heal this man. It's ironic, by the way, I, I love Jesus and how he deals with the Pharisees. This is a little bit of an aside, but if you go back to chapter 2, what does he say? Have you not read? That must have burned the Pharisees as they heard that. Of course they had read. Of course they knew the stories there in First and Second Samuel of David. And, and in First Samuel, how he goes to, uh, to, to Nob and, and, and receives that bread. Of course they, they knew that story, but of course their eyes were dark. And they couldn't see. They didn't understand the true meaning and what was, what was being recorded there. It's also interesting how they were furious with Jesus that he would heal somebody on the Sabbath. If you think about it, commandment number four was to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Commandment number six was to not kill. And what, what did they want to do at the end of Jesus healing somebody on the Sabbath? Not breaking God's law. They wanted to break another one blatantly and obviously. One that didn't need to, to be uh, commented on, it's very clear, you shall, you shall not kill. Well, what did they want to do? After Jesus broke their version of commandment number four, they desired to break commandment number six. And even Jesus points that out. He knows what's going on in their hearts and minds. He knows where they're at mentally, spiritually. And what does he say? Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? What do they want to do? Jesus is trying to do good and is doing good on the Sabbath day. And what do they desire? They desire to do harm. They desire to do evil, and they are on the Sabbath day. So it's interesting, the contrast there. These men had, had been so tied up in legalism that they end up destroying all of the commands of God. They, they try to keep one to the T, and so, so clearly that they end up breaking other ones. This is often what takes place when you take the legalistic approach to keeping God's commands. Another way, another approach that I would call a perversion is the judgmental approach. You, you know the type. It's, it's the approach where you are hyper-concerned about the, the way others are treating the laws of God. In verses 23 and 24 and in verses 2, they're watching Jesus. They're trying to trap him. On the day that they should be resting, what are they doing instead of resting? They're, they're chasing Jesus down. They're watching him. They've got their teams, they're, they're seeing where he goes, they're radioing to one another. This is what we've seen them do. They're taking notes on him. They're exhausted on a day that they should be resting, on a day that they should be worshiping, on a day that, on a day that they should be focusing on their relationship with their maker. Instead, they're judgmental and they're chasing somebody else around and they never get to rest themselves. I think this is one of the most heartbreaking portions of Mark so far. That the spiritual religious leaders are exhausted because they're breaking seven, the, the, the fourth commandment. They're breaking it as they're trying to force others to keep it. Keep it according to their own version. 
And so this is the judgmental approach. And of course, the legalistic approach and the judgmental approach are often the same approach. They're often uh, used at the same time and the same way with the, this next one, which is the self-righteous approach. The self-righteous approach says, look at me, I can keep the law. Look at me, I'm awesome. You know, one of the most beautiful things about the Sabbath law was that it glorified God. It put Yahweh up against Pharaoh and it said, look how great, look how good. Our God doesn't need us to work overtime. Our God doesn't need to wring out our lifeblood in order to, to be successful and to, to achieve these works of art that he's doing. Our God doesn't need to do that. No, as a matter of fact, our God allows us and commands us to rest on the seventh day. And he works for us. He sustains us. He meets our needs. So the Sabbath day, even today, when you rest, what are you saying? What are you doing? If you, do, if you have the, the proper approach to the Sabbath, what you're doing is you're worshiping God and you're glorifying Him. You're making much of Him. You're making a big deal. You're looking and saying, look how good my God is. And He can sustain me. He can meet my needs. All while I rest. But the self-righteous approach, instead of drawing attention to God, instead of glorifying, glorifying God, the self-righteous approach says, look at me. Not look at God, look at me. I can keep the law, and I'm doing a better job at it than you are, and you are, and you are, and you are. And just like the legalistic approach, just like the judgmental approach, the self-righteous approach is an exhausting approach. It's exhausting. It's sad. So many throughout the ages, when it comes to the commands of God, have become self-righteous in them. And instead of glorifying God in his laws as they keep them, they attempt to glorify themselves. By the way, this is the way of Pharaoh. This is the way of Satan. And this is the way of the Pharisee. And so Christian this morning, how does this particular one and, and maybe some of these other ones, how do they apply to us? Well, where do they, where, where could they apply? Where should we be looking at? Well, obviously we want to look out for the Lord's day. We want to look out for the Lord's day. Whatever your view is of the Lord's day, whether, whether you're a strict Sabbatarian or whether you, you believe that uh, differently than that and you have a little bit more grace and you believe there's freedom in there, either way. Do you take the legalistic approach when it, when it comes to the Lord's Day? Do you take the self-righteous approach? By the way, you say, well, that's not me. That's not me. Well, church, we're, we're all sinful, each and every one of us. And so whether you are full on head over heels in one of these approaches, one of these perverted and, per, and, 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 and wrong approaches, whether that's you or not, there's one of them that you're likely tempted to, if not all of them. I know that in my own life, if I'm to be honest with you, that I'm tempted to use all of these approaches to the commands and laws of God in my life. And I don't just do that with the Lord's Day, but I do that with family worship. I do that with personal prayer and Bible study. I do that with life group. I do that with D group. I do that with book club. I do that with giving. I do that with evangelism. I use the laws and the commands of God in my life as a Christian, and I try to glorify myself with them. And I've got to repent of that. And I've got to rest. I've got to truly rest in Christ's righteousness, not my own. In the same way, not just the self-righteous, but the, the judgmental approach, the legalistic approach, the rebellious approach, we're all guilty of these. No doubt, as Jesus looks 
at the Pharisees, Isaiah chapter 1 comes to his mind. Verses 13 through 15 say this, God speaking to the children of Israel, he says, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of convocations. I cannot endure the iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons, your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, God says. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. What a prophetic statement. No doubt it was true in Isaiah chapter 1. And for sure we see it's true in Mark chapter 2 and 3. Their hands, the Pharisees, they were full of blood. They were attempting to rescue the Sabbath, their view and version of it. In the same time, their hands were covered in blood. And to that, God says, I'm tired of it. Talk about tired. God's tired of it. God's tired of these perverted approaches, this legalism, this self-righteousness, this rebellious approach, the judgmental approach. He's tired of it. Let me turn the question to you. Are you tired of it? Imagine how exhausted the Pharisees were. On that Sabbath day, as they chased Jesus down, they didn't rest themselves. They chased Jesus down. Are you tired of comparing yourselves, yourself to others? Are you tired of having to be perfect? Are you tired of pointing out the failures of others, either, either explicitly silently and quietly, maybe even in your own mind? Are you tired of portraying yourself as put together when you're not? That's not pure religion. It's false. And Jesus looks to you this morning, and he looks to me, and he looks to the Pharisee and all of us, and he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He says, I'll give you rest. You were never pr promised material, uh, material riches. He never said that his followers would be without troubles. But he did say, Come to me, and I will give you rest. So one of the saddest things in this story is that the Pharisees were without rest. But one of the most joyous things that we can draw from this text is that we can have rest. And that brings us to the final approach, which is the obedient approach. The obedient approach says this, that God is good. And he gives us these commands that, that flow out of him and they are for his glory and for our flourishing, for our own joy. So the offer for you this morning is that you find rest. That you find rest in obedience to God's commands. That you find joy in God's commands. And that you glorify God by obeying Him. I love this passage and how it refers to Jesus. Jesus refers to Himself, rather, as the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the the Sabbath. The Jews, they recognized that God had instituted the Sabbath, that, that God had created the world, rested himself, and then commanded the Sabbath for the people. And so the, by definition, Yahweh is the Lord of the Sabbath. But we also know this, that Jesus 
is the one by whom all things are created and by whom all things are sustained. And so Jesus, looking to the Pharisees, says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the one who set its precedent. I am the one that defined its purpose. I am the one that outlined its practice. And I'm here to correct the perversions and call you to obedience. And there, in that obedience, we find rest. Jesus says, repent, believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. When Jesus says he's the Lord of the Sabbath, what is he saying? He's saying, I am God. More than any other statement that Jesus makes, we see that this one here is what broke the camel's back. This is what drove the Jews and the Pharisees to hate Jesus because he said he was the Lord of the Sabbath. Instead of rebellion this morning, instead of legalism, instead of judgmental uh, uh, actions, instead of self-righteousness, would we not pursue obedience? And in that obedience, find rest. This is what Jesus is offering. I think of Psalm 23. I'm going to read it for you this morning, at least a portion of it. If it helps, close your eyes and think about this. Maybe you're one that needs rest this morning. It says this, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I won't go without. I don't need to worry. I don't need to clamor. I can rest. Why? Because I won't want for anything. I won't have a need for anything. It says he makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me to rest. He brings me to the place where I can rest, where there's an overabundance of food. The picture is this lamb, the sheep, is in a green pasture full of food, and after it's eat, it's fill, it can lay down and rest, surrounded by resources that will meet its need, and close to the one who has brought him there. It says, he leads me beside the still waters, where that, that lamb, that sheep, can go and get a drink. The type of water that it prefers. That this shepherd literally restores the soul sounds like Sabbath rest. And how does he do that? Well, he leads me in paths of righteousness. We begin to exit the, the word picture here and the analogy, and we, we, we land into the spiritual realm here, paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake, for his own glory. Why does, he, why does he lead us to Sabbath rest? Why does he do that? Because of his own name's sake. And we could continue to go on, but do you not hear the beauty of, of the Sabbath rest that is in Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath. He is not just the Lord of the Sabbath, but he is the Sabbath. He is the Sabbath rest for the Christian. He's the Sabbath rest for you this morning. If you're in your sin, if you're burdened by your sin, if you've touched all the things that you were commanded not to touch and you thought that God was oppressive and now that after you've touched them, you, you sense the burn and the pain in your own life and there are scars in your own life, and you say, I'm tired, and I'm hurting, and I've, I've run from God too long, the offer is there for you this morning to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. And when you do that, you will find that Sabbath rest that we've been commanded to take. I want to close with this this morning. In the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says this statement, and it's one of my favorite statements that Jesus makes. He says, come to me, 
all who are who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Jesus is calling to you this morning, and he's saying, take my yoke upon me, on you and learn of me. He says, come and find rest, where? For your soul. So if you're tired this morning of living in sin, would you turn from that and turn to Jesus and thereby find rest? If you've been pursuing the laws of God in some perverse manner, either judgmentally or or legalistically or self-righteously, would you turn from those things? Would you just humbly and in a God-glorifying way and in a joy-receiving way rest in Jesus? Remember, church, The sinful heart, it turns blessings into burdens, but Jesus offers rest. I love you, church. Hagerstown Church, you are sent.